lately, you know, and it's hard to escape, uh, as we just kind of, you know, as you, as you look out in the news, in the world, in your the workplace, wherever you're at, even, even as a teacher, which is my vocation, um, I'm continually bombarded with this idea about whether through advertisement or whether through uh, encouragement, this idea about greatness. And man has an insatiable appetite and a desire to be great. It's something that is often taught in the educational system. It is trumpeted in the political arena. It's the goal of every sports team. And it is promoted in business. In every human institution, there's a constant push for greatness. And I just stopped and asked the question, is it warranted? This desire to be great is something that psychologist Sigmund Freud said is an urge that is equal to any biological urge that we would have, this desire to be great. And Dale Carnegie, who wrote the book How to Win Friends and Influence People, said that it is a craving that is up there with food and sleep. But unlike food or sleep, which can be satisfied at times, this desire to be important is seldom satisfied. And this thinking is not just in the world, but it's also found its way within the church. Many churches want to be bigger. Many churches want to have more programs. Many churches want to have a greater reach. But are these good goals to have? These are good questions. And how can we define greatness anyway? And that's where my focus is going to be this morning. Jesus gives us a clear answer to that question about how to define what is great. But just as clear, though, as that answer is often that when we see this desire to be important or this desire to be great or prominent, in whatever arena there lurks behind it this sinister motive that fuels these desires, pride. All over the pages of Scripture, you can read countless story after story of pride being this agent that destroys families, that destroys kingdoms, and can even destroy churches. Well, if pride is not the way to greatness, then what is? Well, it's seen in the antidote to pride, which is humility. Humility as a word means lowliness of mind, and it is an attitude of the heart. Humility is not a trait often praised in our culture. It is often something that is not as the focus of a study. We may know that pride can be destructive, but we don't often seek to cultivate and to encourage humility in our lives. And I think it has to do with a lot with misunderstandings about what humility is. As a leader of a community group, uh, we decided that this would be our topic of focus over the next however many weeks that we dive in. And so far we've only had one study, but that one study was greatly refreshing, greatly encouraging, and a reminder to me, as I had studied this topic in years past, 
that is something that we need to continue to cultivate, continue to remind ourselves of, this idea of humility. And so really this message this morning is not just for all of you, but particularly for me. So please turn to Mark 10, as we see what the Lord has to say about this subject. And as you turn to this passage, we'll see that what occurred 2,000 years ago is something that could have occurred last week. You know, our day is very, is, is while culturally very different than Jesus' day as far as dress and pursuits and entertainment and work and government and all of those things. There are many things that are different, but there are some things that remain just the same. And humility, as we would say, is not a trait that is encouraged in in our culture, it was certainly not encouraged or commended in the culture that Jesus lived. Dominated by Greek and Roman influences, which saturated the landscape during that time, the main virtue that the Romans, picking up after the Greeks, what they followed was honor. And the way to greatness was through honor, was through power, was through respect. And humility, on the other hand, was seen as something that was shameful. But it's in Mark 10 that we see the disciples that come to Jesus, and they are seeking places of honor, which in their minds would lead to greatness. Jesus has to correct their thinking And he aligns their desires with God's. And so we will focus this morning on verse 45. But I want to look at the context, being good biblical students. Starting in verse 35, about what Jesus is referring to when we get to our passage. So our passage begins in verse 35. We read, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want, to do, uh, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. So we just got to pause right there because whenever somebody asks you something and they want you to commit to this idea before they've even told you that idea, a red flag should go up. I mean, any of you with kids knows that if they want you to commit to something, your children are probably up to something, right? There's probably one of uh, three things that they could, they could be wanting. One... Normally, I know you would say no, so say yes before you say no, and you can't go back on your word, right? Can we eat ice cream for dinner? You know, sometimes you might say yes, and I would encourage it if you've never tried it. (laughs) Secondly, it could be that they want you to prefer, you know, themselves over perhaps somebody else in the family. You know, maybe it's, can I have the last donut, or can I have, you know, the front seat? And if you had siblings in your, in your teenage years, you probably remember battling for that you know, place of honor. Or it could just be something big, you know, some big ask that, you know, I don't know, but I'm just going to throw it out there and see what you say. You know, your 16-year-old asks, can I have a car for Christmas? I mean, maybe there's a chance, probably remote, but you might say yes. And I think with James and John that there seem to be elements of all three that are mixed in there. But Jesus listens, and we continue on in verse 36, and Jesus said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. 
Well, what James and John had should be commended at this point is that they had a right understanding of who Christ was. So far, Jesus had a following of people, but the crowds, they swelled and then they shrank depending on what kind of miracle Jesus was doing that day and particularly what Jesus was teaching on. But James and John, they were committed. And for the last three years, walking with Jesus, they had a right understanding that Jesus was the Son of God and they knew that he was what the Old Testament referred to as the Messiah or the Christ. In numerous places in Scripture, when you see the Messiah, which has several terms through Scripture, or which means anointed one, is described that uh, there is particular elements that come with a reign or a rule. For example, in Psalm 2, you can read, The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nation your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession." And you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. If I'm going to be on somebody's side, I'm going to be on that guy's side. And if I get a place close to him when he actually takes on that status, then that would be something that would benefit me. So they came in believing these things to be true, believing all the things that the Old Testament said to be true about Jesus, and a little bit opportunistic. And they asked him, you know, could they have a place of prominence, a place of power? I mean, can you blame, blame them? It never hurts to ask, right? Well, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptize, baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So Jesus really tells them they don't understand what they're asking and what their request involves. He then follows up with a question and asks them, are you able to drink of this cup? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I will receive? And, And they said, yeah, sure, whatever it is, we don't know what that is, but yes, And what Jesus is referring to is that he's talking about his suffering that he will endure on the cross and the suffering that goes with committing themselves with being a kingdom citizen of the one true God. And following in the footsteps of Jesus, that was the commitment that they were agreeing to. But Jesus confirms that they would share in that experience, but he says he is unable to grant their request to sit at his left or at his right. I mean, there are only two places to sit in relation to the king, on one side or the other. And they've asked for both. But they don't realize it's not his decision to make. That it is God the Father who's determined who would be there, and it does not go to the first one who calls dibs on left and right. So it's a simple request and a simple answer, right? End of story. But how do the disciples react to what the brothers request. We read in verse 41, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Indignant. They were angry. And they were a little bit annoyed with James and John's request. How could they even ask such a question? It was probably first what entered their mind. I mean, we might feel the same way too. Not because it's the right way to react, but it's just how we react to some of these situations. 
I'm sure what they were thinking next, even though they never voiced these questions, is why didn't I think to ask? But we start to see this competitive spirit rear its ugly head amongst these men. And so Jesus stops and he sees a teachable moment. And so he gathers them together, and this is what he says. Verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know, there, that there, the, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Jesus responds and he says that their current rulers, which were the Gentiles, previously the Greeks, but currently the Romans, they have it as their goal, as their way of life, to exercise power over those under them. If someone rebelled, they crushed that rebellion. Freedom of speech was limited only to what the Roman government desired. And we see in many instances that the Jews were influenced by this sort of thinking. James and John are there asking for these places of prominence. But so were the previous generations. We have the Romans, but before that the Greeks. And before the Greeks, we have the Persians. And before the Persians, we have the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians. And you can continue to go all the way back until you hit the Garden. And even since that time, we continue to see that this is something that is ingrained within the human heart. Exercising our authority is part of who we are. It is part of our sin nature. It was actually part of the first sin where Adam and Eve exercised their authority and disobeyed God, saying, I know what's right for you. You can have anything you want. You're free to be in the garden and eat of anything except this one thing. And they decided to exercise their ability to choose that one thing that God prohibited. And we see the consequences of that. Even in their children, in the first murder, we saw that Cain was warned because Abel's offering was accepted. Cain, don't go down this path. And he exercised his authority to knock out his competition. So if one, one person's going to be approved by God... I'll only give God one choice to make. And we, you can read how that ends with Cain there. And so there are many times when we examine our own hearts that we would likely discover that there's been places and people that we have exercised that authority or tried to seize power. Perhaps it's in our jobs, perhaps it's in our friendships, in our marriages, with our kids, you name it. We probably have done it. But Jesus flips the script and he says, it's not those who exercise their authority who are great. It's not those who are strong or who are in the places of authority. He says, those who will be great in God's eyes are those who fade into the background and they push others forward. They don't seek the glory and limelight, but they seek the best for others. And Jesus says that it's not those who actively seek greatness who are great. 
Now this thinking again is so counter to our natural inclinations, to what those psychologists would claim are basic human urges or desires. And Jesus doesn't disagree. However, Jesus offers a different path. And so in Mark 10, 45, we provide a, Jesus provides a summary statement. And so uh, commentators would say that this verse would sum up Jesus' mission here on earth. And we want to, I want to dive and dissect this verse. And in it, we're going to see what true greatness is. And it's not how it empowers us, but how it makes us realize that we are not the ones who even have the power at all. And so as followers of Jesus, we can discover three aspects of Christ's mission that should humble every believer. Three aspects that should limit our pride in our life and create true greatness in the eyes of God. And so Jesus again said to his disciples, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, in this short statement, we see kind of three aspects of Jesus' life and ministry. We're going to see a past, a present, and a future. And we're also going to see three aspects that highlight our understanding of who Jesus is and how we can relate to him in our past, our present, and in our future. And then we can see three ways that these truths will battle the pride that seek to dismantle our Christian walk. And so the first one we see is focus on God, not man. Focus on God, not man. We'll see that this is going to battle our self-sufficiency. What does Jesus say? Well, Jesus starts off and says, For even the Son of Man came. Now, Jesus is used to the statement, For even, tells the disciples that he is in the same boat as they are. He is not their teacher who is saying, you know, do as I say, but he says, follow me, watch me, look at me. And he points to something that happens in his past. And so Jesus came to serve, for even the Son of Man came. And interestingly, Jesus didn't use the pronoun I. And he uses this term, Son of Man. And so, what did Jesus mean by this phrase? Well, there's two times or two ways that the phrase son of man is used in scripture. And one time it would be a son of man would just be any human, you know, son of just humans or mankind in general. It's talked about in prophets and in history and so, you know, numerous places in the Old Testament. And whenever you see this term used, it often speaks to man's humanity, man's frailty, man's weakness, Man's sometimes even sinfulness and limitations. And so, son of man can be used in that way. But it really wouldn't fit in this scenario because Jesus is kind of making the point. For even the son of man came to do this. And so it really you know, dismantles that way of thinking. If it were to work, the son of man that Jesus refers to must be someone special. And if it's going to complement when Jesus says the rulers of the Gentiles think in this way... That the Son of Man that Jesus is describing is going to be himself a ruler. And so there's a second way that this term Son of Man is used in Scripture. And one place in the Old Testament that Jesus ends up picking up that it's used in a different manner was in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. So I'll just read that for you. Daniel, 
has a vision. And in his vision, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this son of man, Daniel was referring to particularly that he, had, he came in the form of a human. But whenever that term was picked up later, son of man was to describe this son of man. This son of man who was sent, who would have everlasting power and dominion of all the nations of the world. He would be a global ruler that none has ever seen before. And it was so, this, this term from Daniel was so unique from any human that throughout Jesus' ministry, he used this term to describe himself. And instead of using the pronoun I at times, he would describe the Son of Man. When Jesus speaks in the third person this way, he describes this Son of Man as one who could forgive sins, one who could judge with the angels, one who could be raised from the dead and sit on a glorious throne. We know now that John and James had understand Jesus' connection with this Son of Man. But he uses this term again, this time in saying that the Son of Man would not come in this glorious manner, which he will. It still is. Uh, these aspects are yet to be fulfilled. But he speaks in a, a different tone. And one of the ways that Jesus describes the Son of Man was in John 3.13. He says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This coming or descending is what makes Jesus stand out. And it ends up becoming an important emphasis in his ministry and regarding who he was and what his mission was. And I'm thankful that Brian read from Philippians 2, and I'd like you to turn there. And we're just going to look at a couple of the verses, because it, and I'm glad he got the whole context of how it sits within that package of Paul speaking from a prison about who Christ is and why we should follow him. But in verse 5, verse 5, picking up on this language of descent from heaven, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he explains what this looks like. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And Paul says Jesus Christ was God. And during much of human history, up until the point that Jesus enters into creation, that Jesus sat in perfect unity with the Godhead. Jesus Christ lacked nothing. He had everything at his disposal and everything was under his control. But what did this member of the Trinity do? Paul says he did not grasp, and that word grasp means to hold tightly onto. 
trying to pull your kids off the monkey bars. They got their hands grasped tightly. But God did not grasp tightly this position or place of honor in the Trinity, in the Godhead, but he let it go. And he emptied himself, and he poured himself out in one form, which was all spirit in the Godhead, and poured himself into the form of a man so he can come to earth. And he took all those privileges and rights, and he laid those aside for a time so he could come to earth. He became man. But he, he was not like one of us in that he was a son of man, but he was the son of man described in Daniel. I think all too often when we think about Jesus, we think about Jesus in his earthly ministry. And we think of him as a man, which rightly he was, but that's, that's mainly the way that we can connect with Jesus. And I think sometimes when we think about Jesus and his humanity, although that was done so we could relate to God and so we could see this form of God as an example for us, sometimes we, it diminishes our thinking about who God is. And so when we think about Jesus coming, I want us to think about the fact that who Jesus was, who Jesus is now, and all of those rights and powers that are still his, that are still now at his disposal, now that he is reigning and ruling in heaven. And when we think of, often of Jesus coming, you know, we think about Christmas and we think about the birth of this child and this infant, and that is where our images and our mind usually goes to during that time. But the great miracle about God coming to earth with all the other miracles of a virgin birth and the other things that came and following a star is that the great miracle is that this, this son is Emmanuel, that he is God with us. And so now God is accessible to us, but he is never equal to us. Now, at this point, you may be thinking like, well, isn't that obvious, right? You know, I I know that I'm a human. I know that God is God. But the reality is, is that while we theologically think that way, and we can compartmentalize that God is God and man is man, that all too often in our lives, we act that these two things are together. And sometimes, even though God is God, in our own minds, we place ourselves over the place and position of God's authority. And it's only natural because everything we see and everything that we hear, everything that comes inside of us and filters through our brain goes through this lens of me. Right? That is what our world is, is the choices we make and the things that we pick up in interacting with this world around us. And we would never say that we are the center of our world. But unfortunately, especially looking at how everyone else acts, everyone thinks that they are the center of this world. And so we need to remind ourselves and need to calibrate our thinking continually with the perspective that we are not God. Right? We warp everything out of our perspective And we try to do everything on our own and seize control of many of the things that are in God's control or in God's charge. But the great thing was that the Son of Man, He came. He came to us so we don't have to think that we are in charge. He came so that we know that no matter how hard we try, there will only be one Messiah. And He will rule over every nation 
and he will prevail upon the ungodly, and he will rule with wisdom over his people. But we often forget this. We try to rule our little kingdoms without regard that even our little kingdom is subject to the God of this universe. And now sometimes God like gives us in his grace, he gives us a glimmer of what that looks like. And whatever it is for you, whether it's like being out in nature and just looking up at the, the stars in heaven when you can actually go somewhere and see stars in heaven, and you see these things and you think like, man, there's just something greater than me. And the realization should be, yes, yes, there is something greater than you. Or you're out by the ocean and you see waves just crashing upon the cliffs over and over and over again and you're just mesmerized by them and pulled in and you just think like those things are so powerful you know, I am not. And, and God is saying, that is right. You are not. Or the sound of thunder, or you see something, just whatever it is that pulls you and lets you know and lets you recognize that there is one who prevails over all of these things and that could crush a thousand yous and me's in a single breath. And just that thought should stop us and it should humble us. It should take us from whatever lofty position, whatever grand desires that we have and make us feel low for a good reason. That we have a creator and we are the creatures. And we see sometimes that the glory that we desire and the glory that we seek is actually stealing from the one who deserves all the glory, which is God. So sometimes having that clear understanding of our place in the hierarchy of things, you know, helps us to prioritize what's important. Solomon says in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yes, that is true. Fearing the Lord and understanding that this Lord reigns and rules and we have nothing that we can do to thwart that is a great place to start. And it keeps our heart in check. So when pride creeps in, we start to get puffed up. We need to humble ourselves and give praise to Jesus for giving up everything in heaven to come to give us hope. And so Jesus, he just kind of assumes that, right? You know, that the Son of Man came. And as limited creatures, we come to an understanding of who we are, or more insightfully, who we aren't. And it should make us ready to do whatever this creator says. And so this is the first point that humbles us as human beings, not just Christians. That at some point, every person, and if you go forward in, in Philippians, that every person will eventually realize who Jesus is and bow the knee to him. Because on earth, sometimes they don't act that way. And even as Christians, sometimes we feel the same way. When speaking of humility, author Andrew Murray says, Humility is simply the sense of entire nothingness, which comes when we see how truly God is all, and in which we make way for God to be all. When the creature realizes that this is true goodness, and consents to be the vessel in which the life and glory of God are to work and exhibits themselves, he sees that humility is simply acknowledging the truth of his position as the creature in yielding to God his rightful place. So the second part of Jesus' mission statement is really to focus on others and not yourself. 
And this battles pride. And this is kind of the main point that Jesus makes. He says he did not come to be served, but to serve. And Jesus, making this statement, says that he's willing to be an example to follow. And as the example to follow, he was sharing with his other disciples that his way is the way that they should follow. Jesus demonstrated this, not just in this statement, but he demonstrated this with his life many times and in many ways. Right? Jesus showed that he was not above serving others. He taught. He healed. He provided food. He prayed. He baptized. He cast out demons. He challenged authorities. He loved. He wept. He did all of these things. Traveling by foot. Not staying in luxury hotels. He did not spend the majority of his time with the rich and powerful, but quite the opposite. Those who were poor and often neglected. It was hard work that was often met with little thanks and lots of resistance. But Jesus continued, continued until the end. And we know what his last duty on earth was. One clear act of service as a demonstration that he said, I want, I'm doing this as a demonstration for you all, was in, in John... Uh, when he washes the feet of the other disciples. And so knowing that he had one last, on earth, one last night on earth with them, they have, before they have the Passover meal, and before he ultimately gets to the cross, Jesus, is, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He gets down on his knees, he removes the dirt off of their feet in a picture of humility, something that a teacher or a rabbi would never do for his disciples because that would not have been an honorable thing to do. Jesus assumes that position of servant and washes their feet. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, so he says, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than than the one who sent them. So the hard thing for the disciples to understand is that what we see in the world is not necessarily the way it should be. Yes, there are others in control, and the way they get into control in the places of authority and power were to exercise that control. It was the Gentiles who were in charge. But Jesus says this is not how it's supposed to be. God has granted them power for now, mainly because the Jews rebelled against his, you know, his gracious acts, that you can see all throughout the Old Testament. But Jesus' example was a picture that, of something that God had always intended, the way that kings rule. And there's an interesting uh, passage in Deuteronomy 17. It describes that when, uh, in Deuteronomy, you have the new generation is in the wilderness before they're going to enter into the promised land, before Joshua will, will take over and he'll you know, uh, lead them into the promised land. You know, Moses re-describes to them he, the law. And in chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, he says that you, when you go into your, uh, the new land, you're going to want a king. Now, God was supposed to be their king. And supposed to be the, the one who would tell them when they need to rise up and need to move. And he would go before them in their battles. But he says, I know you're going to look at the other nations and say, we want a king over us. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel, about how that plays out. 
But he says, when you get, you know, when you, when, when you want a king, I'm going to allow you a king. Because ultimately, you know, God is going to use this to, to, to point to what this Messiah will be for all people, a king. So he's going to allow him that picture. And in Deuteronomy 17, he describes three things that I don't want the king to do. First, I don't want them to acquire many horses. Second, I don't want them to acquire many wives. And third, I don't want them to acquire much silver or gold. And so, and there were reasons for that and not trusting in God's provision, but in trusting in their own power and strength and whatever it is. But after that, he gives one provision that he wants all the kings to do. And when they assume their place of power and they come into their kingdom, they were required to copy down the law. They would write it out so, one, they would know it, but two, God says this, so he will know God's commands and, this is the second thing, so that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. So in God's eyes, the king was no better than any Israelite in relation to God's law. They were all subject to this higher power, this higher authority. He may have been given greater responsibility, but he was not to be above in his heart, above God. Or, I'm sorry, above any of his brothers. And Jesus pictures that clearly. He was a servant. He was, this is why he came. That was part of his mission. And so if you're still in Philippians, when Paul was speaking of Jesus emptying himself and taking the form of a man, the context was in serving others. Two verses before that, in Philippians uh, uh, 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That is the attitude that we have when we serve others. And why? When we serve, is it to get things done? Is it to accomplish something? No, the whole goal is that when we serve, it is a conduit for us to build others up. We may be doing things and accomplishing things, but the whole heart intent whenever we serve is that we can be an encouragement to one another. And in doing so, when we encourage others and we lift others up, we, there's a byproduct of pushing pride down. John the Baptist said of Jesus' ministry, right? He was the main, main man on scene, and then Jesus came. And John the Baptist didn't fight that. He, he knew who Jesus was. And he says, now, he must increase, and I must decrease. That is the attitude that we need to have. And so we know that we are, we are to serve others. And this is not something that, and again, you know, is really even, you know, limited only to churches, right? Millions of people all over the world, they give their money to causes, they donate their time, you know, they're out there doing things for humanitarian reasons or for whatever it is, volunteering at local food shelters, you name it. But even the community, you know, Christians aren't the only ones who bring casseroles to those who lose a spouse or those who have a new baby, So what makes Christian's service so different than anyone else? Because we would all say, no matter, you know, pagan or not, believer, that there is something innate with us when we serve, we understand that we're doing something good. 
But the difference is, especially when we look at Christ's example, right, is that when he washed the disciples' feet, he knew who these men were. He knew their hearts. He knew that one of the men was going to betray him later that night. He knew that one of the men was going to deny him three times. And he knew that all the rest of them are going to bolt when the authorities come. And yet he washed their feet. Yet he set himself as an example to others. Right? Christ tells us to serve, but he doesn't qualify who we are to serve. Right? And sometimes seeking to serve and to love others who we know don't really care for us that much, maybe because of what we believe or whatever the reason is, that it actually can be emotionally gut-wrenching at times. Right? It goes against like, those natural desires to do things for those you know, who like us. It's easy to give something to somebody who reciprocates back because it gives you the, kind of that warm feeling. But Jesus is saying, this is the example that I'm giving you to not only do for those who love you, but also do for those that are your enemies. Those who are you know, in positions of oversight. You know that those underneath you try to exercise power, maybe by betrayal. We know that in friendship, some people will try to exercise their power by keeping distance. You know that those who are you know, under someone, those who exercise power are those who try to control and manipulate you and do things that you don't like. But guess what? All of these people, whether, whether bosses or family or friends, we are to love and we are to serve when the opportunity arises. Because again, Jesus did not qualify whom he served and when. And this is important why we, you know, need to, to be in the Word, to see those examples, right? If I can be reminded, oh yeah, Jesus did this too. Oh yeah, Paul did this too. Yeah, Peter did this too. We can continue to understand and say, like, these men were set as examples for us. To say, if they can do it, then we can do it too. So just kind of some, just a couple quick practical things before we move to our last point. Is like, how can you possibly do that? What's some practical wisdom? Like, how can we serve those who, you know, we know maybe oppose us? Well, first, it's good to know that all men are created in God's image. And as image bearers, that God has given them, one, a conscience, but also has given them the same uh, choices and abilities to, to choose him if he so desires. And so, one, made in God's image, understands that we're all in the same boat reflective of that image, how muddy it is or not. And secondly, we know that sin causes us to act in ways that do not build up. And so it's possible to love our enemies because we know that they are not, they're acting not in according to how God desires, but that sin is clouding their thinking and their mind and would have them act counter to how Christ would desire them. And then third is just pray that the Lord... You know, we'll give you the right heart attitude so your emotions line up with these truths. So serving others helps battle that pride and keeps it down so then we can do exactly what Jesus Christ did because he said he came in order to serve. But that service, again, was just not to do something for somebody else. His mission was unique and something that no one else could fulfill and that leads us to that third point, is that if we have a focus on Christ's death, not your own life. So Jesus said he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
And often, though, when people look at this verse, they see, like, what is, you know, this, uh, an explanation of? Like, he gave his life as a ransom for many. Well, that would be the ultimate price, right? And so we are to give up to that point that we expend our life for the sake of Christ. Now, I wouldn't say that's wrong attitude. And certainly, James and John and the rest of the disciples, like, every disciple except John would give their life for the cause of Christ, James himself would be the first martyr of the church. And so that certainly there is embedded in what Jesus understood or what Jesus was saying. But I think a greater focus should be on the word ransom. And Jesus says that his life is a ransom for many. When that term ransom is used, it refers to a price that is paid for the sake of someone else, typically someone who is in captivity. We could never act in the way that Jesus describes. Only Jesus could act as a ransom for many. A ransom or redemption is the payment to purchase back the freedom of someone or something. Paul in Romans 5 kind of captures this idea clearly when he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So let's pause and think about that, that that the ransom is the son of God. He is the payment and the ransomed is us. We are the captors. And we had nothing to offer that could come close to buying our freedom. There was no amount of money, there was no amount of goodness that could buy our way out of bondage. But Christ, he could buy it. You know, you, me, we're we're slaves of sin. Without Christ, that is who we are. We were weak. And God demands holiness. It's just not some arbitrary statement, but it's a fact that in order to be in the presence of a holy God, man must be holy. Otherwise, they can't exist. His holiness would consume them. But who would give up his life or her life for someone who only thinks of himself, who is a slave to sin? You know, Paul stops and kind of contemplates this. He says it seems unlikely for someone, maybe, you know, maybe for a good person they might give their life, you know, perhaps, you know, a righteous person. But for the sinner, the person who's only consumed with themselves, who would do that? Well, we know the answer. It's the son of man that would give his life as a ransom. You know, we, we know that probably if we were kidnapped, we wouldn't fetch a high price possible that we wouldn't get any price at all. But the one who could garner the highest ransom, the Son of God, is the one who paid for the sins of everyone. If we just stopped and we took stock of all the things in our life, all the selfishness, all the pride, all the deception, all the lies, we come to the conclusion that we should probably remain in the state that we're in. But instead, God freed us. And it was paid for by his son. 
And Paul's point is that this was the supreme demonstration of love. A demonstration that's hard-pressed to find among our peers. And so daily we need to be reminded of this. And unfortunately, sometimes the longer that it's been since, you know, since we have been freed from captivity, that we've experienced the grace of God, it's so much more important that we remind ourselves and remember the life that we lived before Christ. And think about the things that God gave up, that Jesus gave up in the Godhead to come here on earth and to live a life that was hard and to live a life that was full of rejection and ended in pain and hurt. But he did it so that those who call on the name of Christ could enter God's holy presence. They could take care of that sin and would even adopt us as sons and daughters. That thought is truly humbling. So understanding the depths of God's love and grace should be more humbling than even just understanding that God is God and we are man. It's more humbling than thinking about all the pride that we have to battle on a daily basis. That God's grace eclipses all of these things. And that God would choose me, a sinner, a slave, to release by the sacrifice of his son. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Never truer words have been penned. So let's think about how we can just kind of recap and and apply these truths. First, focus on God, not on man. Because all too often, our minds drift and our thoughts drift about what others are doing. Let's only think about what the Lord desires and wants for our life. Focus on others and not yourself. Because the more that we can focus on others and encouraging others, the less we'll even think about what we need. And it'll help suppress that pride. And focus on Christ's death and not our lives. And again, you know, this message is much for you as it is for me. That often we focus too much on our own lives. And we're con- con- continually bombarded by snapshots of people who seem like they are having more fun, which sometimes we equate with more fulfilling. But while it appears that a lot of people are enjoying great lives, just be grounded in knowing that a great life is a life where we follow the great example of our Creator, example, and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Jesus and that He came on a mission and that He showed us time and time again that We too, through the sake of the Spirit, can follow his example, and he left us examples to follow. And then the last act before he left earth was to give his life to save those who could not save themselves. Lord, I pray for those that um, call themselves followers of Christ, Lord, that we would just be renewed by these understandings and recalibrate our thinking when we get lost or sidetracked. And I pray for those that are you may be just struggling or under, trying to understand you know, what the gospel is. And I just pray, Lord, you'll continue to work on, on their hearts and uh, open up your truth to them. Help them see that you are a God who created this world and that through Jesus Christ, he gave himself. Not like any Gentile ruler or any ruler we can see here in America, but Jesus was different. And he paved a way that sinners could be 
with a holy God. So we thank you for your word, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.